0: Come with
1: us. I'm not the movie uh, greetings! You're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 112, and into the Continental Podcast with me, Dan, doing synth covers again down here in Melbourne, Australia, and me, Conrad, looking after a sick dog in Cambridge, UK. Dog. Oh. In this podcast, we debate furiously over genre film, sci-fi, horror, and fantasy because nothing is more complete than having characters with names like Shad, Sador, Nanelia, <laughs> Cayman, and Nestor. <laughs> Hello, Conrad. How are you?
0: How's your dog? I'm fine, Dan. Oh, my poor dog. one of the conditions of foster uh, sorry, adopting a dog is that you have to agree to have them fixed. Yes. And so my my poor little dog has been fixed. And she's very sore, bless her. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Trying to make her comfortable, but she keeps yipping and running around. And it makes me really, uh-huh. it makes me feel guilty because, you know, I took her there. Yeah. But does, that's... Does she have the cone of shame? The, no, she has a new thing. It's a new technology. It's the baby grow of shame. Okay. Um, what does that look like? Which uh, <laughs> it, it's just as you imagine it. It is a baby grow that's padded and bite-proof, so she cannot get to the parts that <laughs> that other beers cannot reach. Okay. And uh, yeah, she's um, she looks very uncomfortable. It has poppers at the back for convenience when she needs to go outside, but. Uh, yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. She does not look happy. It's oh. not.
1: It's not good. I just look at her and feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I hear the the process for yeah for for female dogs is a little bit more intense. Compared to fixing a male dog? Yeah.
0: Well, with a male dog, everything's just hanging out there. So, they just, you just sort of snip it off and, and that's the end of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. so with female dogs. Right, so, right, yeah. Right. She's not happy at the moment. And I feel very bad because I took her there. So, it's all my fault.
1: Oh, oh no. Yeah. I oh. mean, I, I will have to say with my dog, when we got him fixed, uh, it there was a lot of swelling. We got very concerned. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> it was very red. Um, but it did go down um, after a while, so it was completely fine. So maybe yeah. it'll be the same for your dog.
0: Yeah, fingers crossed. She will be fine in a few days. Yeah. But meanwhile,
1: you're cooking up a storm on Instagram with oh, your synth covers. Yeah, just just doing some some synth covers. Uh, I'm trying to recreate like sort of metal and more like guitar-driven songs on synth, seeing what happens. But yeah, it's been fun he's <laughs> certainly more energetic than I can be during the week <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you know Talking about uh, more energy uh, in the podcast today <laughs> We we do have a guest. We do, thank goodness.
0: Joining us today <laughs> is the co-founder of Retro Blasting, the premier video channel specialising in humorous analysis and deconstruction of 80s vintage toys and classic cartoons. He's a host, he's an expert, he's a gentleman and a defender of the underdog everywhere. He's Michael French. Hello, sir. Wow! Hello! Hel- hel-
2: <laughs> hello? <laughs> hello, Dan and Conrad. Thank you for having me back. Um, I, I th- That was easily the coolest intro that's ever been given for me. (laughs) And I have this feeling that it was just right off the top of that Cambridge trig head of yours. (laughs) Wow. Yeah.
0: I do prepare the intros because I do do love to give our guests a good intro and they are often thrilled with them. So that makes me feel happy. I am am
2: humbled, (laughs) I'm sobered, and I don't even drink all that much. So yeah, like, wow. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it.
0: It's great to have you back. What have you been working on recently? What can your your subscribers and uh, other people who have yet to subscribe... Got to look forward
2: well, to Well, uh, we just crossed 99,000 subscribers after, oh, after wow. 10 and a half years. So we're huge losers Congrats. in that respect on YouTube. <laughs> but we are determined losers that will not give up. We are the bad news bears of uh, YouTube <laughs> toy collecting. And uh, right after we get done with this recording of this wonderful Movie Oubliette episode, And I know it it will be because it's just going to be great. Every time I'm with you guys, it's great. But after this, (laughs) uh, I have to go back into the room that's behind me and finish Bionic 6 Part 2, uh, which people have been really looking forward to. This is the retrospective on the toys. Once I do that and get Mm -hmm. that done, that will go up on Patreon tonight, and then it will be online for everybody to enjoy tomorrow, which by the time everybody hears this recording it'll already be online several days. But uh, then I have five, six, seven thousand other ideas I've got to deal with. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, before we get into the movie, I guess we should go through some mailbag, Conrad. We should. Yes. We've been hearing
0: lots from our listeners as always, and particularly on your post about uh, watching remakes. You watched The Crazies, I believe.
1: I did, yes.
0: And uh, you ask people if, for, to list their favourite uh, remakes that are better than the original. Eddie Coulter was straight in there with uh, The Thing From Another World. Big fan of the original, great snappy dialogue. But like Poltergeist, there's arguments as to who the actual director is. In this case, it was credited to director Christian Nyby. Right. Nyby? Okay. Mm. Or Howard Hawks, who was the producer and also did some uncredited rewrites on the script. But yes, definitely the case where the thing was better than the original. Right, uh, yes. Kevin from Planet X said, The Mummy, 1999. Ah, There's little yes. these films share beyond their basic setup, but the remake is head and shoulders above the Universal classic. Mm, not not the,
1: the most recent Mummy, though.
0: No, the Tom Cruise <laughs> one with the hilarious trailer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. oh dear and so nice to see brendan fraser making a massive comeback at the moment too on the way good on him yeah yeah brings a tear to the eye because he is just genuinely so thrilled to find out how much people want to see him succeed Mm, so mm, mm. love that kind of thing Uh, On a completely unrelated note, Jimmy Salt messaged us to say, please do Biggles Adventure Through Time with Retro Blasting. (laughs) 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 Have you heard of this film, Michael?
2: (laughs) I have it on DVD. I have not watched it yet. An enthusiastic uh, supporter of the channel sent it to us as a donation a few months back, and I've been wanting to watch it. So I would love to do that with you guys in the future. That'd be great. I would love to do that one with you.
0: I have seen it. Uh, Yes, it is. I remember it being questionable. Mm -hmm. So that always makes for an interesting discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it shared a composer with Lair of the White Worm, which we did last week with Lars, who uh, also yes. got in touch because when we put up a, a social media clip including the uh, inevitable uh, Amanda Donohoe snake dance, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Lars messaged to say, "Now, why is there a toy T-Rex standing next to Lady Sylvia's basket? I asked I'm that only as just well. seeing that yes. for the first time." <laughs> Over an hour of discussion and this film still holds wonders to be dissected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Why is there a plastic dinosaur guarding her basket? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> And, of course, we heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Hello, Serge. And he said, Lair of the White Worm is one of those movies whose covers I remember from browsing blockbuster as a kid. Always thought it was some highly erotic horror thriller. It's actually a goofy comedy horror with a great cast that's having a ball with its tongue planted firmly in its cheek. Sure, there are plenty of flaws, all thoroughly catalogued in the latest episode of Movie Oubliette. But if you're willing to dial into its wavelength, you're in for a fun time. Amanda Donohoe should be an institution.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> she should. She should be sauntering everywhere in a snake suit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I should be sauntering over to the Oubliette to find out what we're doing this time. Yes, Conrad. Oh. Oh, I'm in some very arid, strange alien world, and there's a crystal here, and I don't know, like a glass vibraphone?
1: Okay. I don't know. I just you need to
0: play it. Yeah, I'll just try a few notes and see what happens. Oh, there's, there's an earthquake happening. Whoa. Oh, get out of there, Conrad. I'll just try thirds. Okay, th- that's released a, a movie. Okay,
1: I'll, <laughs> I'll come back. Okay. Oh, the adventures we have! Yeah, it did sound uh, very musical,
2: though. It, yeah, it was lovely. I'm just glad <laughs> you're back. I was getting uh, I was getting flashbacks to the Lucas and click adventure, The Dig, and I was worried for <laughs> you. <laughs> did that have
0: a vibraphone section? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was an alien world that was very dusty and sandy, and uh, three people were stranded there. And that's all I know. I think a lamp got broken. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, what
0: do you have, Conrad? I have returned with Battle Beyond the Stars, mm. a 1980 American space opera film produced by the great Roger Corman, directed by Jimmy T. Murakami, and starring John Boy Walters himself, Richard Thomas, Robert Vaughan, George Papard, John Saxon, Sybil Danning. And Darlan Fug- Flugel?
1: Flugel, yes. Mm, okay. So, what is this a movie about? It's a completely original movie, right? It's not, completely. not influenced by any other movie.
0: No, nothing influenced this movie. (laughs) When his peace-loving homeworld is threatened by a sadistic warlord with the most powerful weapon in the galaxy, idealistic farm boy Shad sets out on a quest to hire mercenaries to defend his people from certain doom. He assembles a magnificent seven quirky characters. A doomed gunfighter with a bounty on his head, a scotch-gulping space cowboy, a war-loving Valkyrie maiden who almost wears outfits that would make Barbarella blush, a vengeful lizard, a clutch of clones, and a girl who knows computers and stuff. Together they mount an unlikely campaign on land and in space featuring sonic tanks, heat aliens, assassination attempts with psychically controlled arms, and a kamikaze gang-raped wedding officiator. <laughs> but will they defeat Vader, sorry, Sader, and their and win their war, sorry, battle amongst the stars? Find out after the break. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and we're back to talk about Roger Corman's 1980 space opera battle beyond the stars. Michael the great aficionado of the Star Wars universe, as you are. Amazingly, you had never seen this movie. Is that right?
2: That is correct. I have seen clips and scenes from it. I had never seen the whole film. I have been aware of it mm-hmm. all the way back to childhood, but I'd seen it in, you know, rental stores, things like that. But I had never actually watched it. I've seen some of the Star Wars knockoffs, like Star Crash with David Hasselhoff. I have actually seen that, Oh yes, but I had not (laughs) seen this one. And uh, so I was very excited to finally watch the Blu-ray that had been sent to me about a year ago. A supporter of the channel sent it to me because he knew that I had wanted to see it. And Mm. it was a very kind gesture. So this lovely oubliette that we are now working in, uh, (laughs) it gave me the excuse to finally watch it.
0: Yeah. I'm just so honoured that we get to record your reaction yeah. to Battle Beyond the Stars.
1: Yeah, me too. This is a moment. <laughs> yes. uh, and Dan, how about you? No, um, I have heard lots of things about this movie, but never seen it. I'm pretty sure you're, you've mentioned it, Michael, and maybe Iconic on last year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, never seen it.
2: Very shocked uh-huh. by what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, going in when it's Roger Corman, you know that it's going to be on the cheap. You know that it's going to be capitalizing on whatever the fad is in that moment. Hashtag carnosaur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you don't really know from one Corman production to the next just how spit and bailing wire it's going to be. And with this one, you can tell that a lot of money was spent until you find out that a lot of money was spent on previous productions. And then these shots were recycled for this film to give it an intended amount of scope.
1: Right. Okay i'm not versed with uh roger corman what's his sort of reputation just cheap and dirty. Yeah. Yeah. Cheap
0: exploitation movies usually taking advantage of whatever the trend is at the time. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that as soon as Star Wars hit theatres and made however many hundreds of millions of dollars and completely changed the face of modern cinema, let's face it, he thought, well, got to get me some of that money. So uh, yes, he set the budget of this movie at 2 million, which was, I believe, the most expensive film that New World Pictures, his production cost company had ever undertaken at right, that point. Okay. So this was released to 330 theatres in July 1980. It grossed 11 million in total on an investment of 2 million. So you could say this isn't really an oubliette film because it did get its money back. How? But then when you compare <laughs> it to another science fiction movie released in that year, something called The Empire Strikes Back, which was still topping the charts Earning 13 million that week alone. Wow. Eleven weeks after it had premiered. Grossed 203 million in total on its initial release. Wow. So that's the comparison. Yeah.
2: <laughs> there were a lot of movies that came out back then in theatrical runs very briefly that I don't think are invalidated for the movie Oubliette discussion because back then there weren't as many straight to video films or straight to cable movies. That was just starting to even be a concept. So you've got these lost films that. Only if you lived it back then do you kind of remember it being there, or mm. you might have seen a sun faded VHS copy at Blockbuster. Yeah.
0: When it came to the special effects, he went to John Dykstra's outfit, Apogee, former ILM, and he quoted him two million, and Corman was disgusted and built his own special effects company. Wow in a lumber yard Mm -hmm. and put James Cameron in charge of it Uh, yes, Uh, yes. (laughs) and did it for less than half of that and then went on to reuse all of the shots in about eight other films subsequently. That's what I read. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing Space Raiders and being horrified. (laughs) I was sort of channel hopping, saw the spaceship from Battle Beyond the Stars and thought, oh, Battle Beyond the Stars. And then some other movie was happening in <laughs> right. between and i was wow. just completely
2: confused. Yeah.
0: He is uh cheap cheap cheap.
2: <laughs> the other thing that i noticed when i watched it the other night with melinda, we do this thing where I, one of us will raise our hand and that means the other person has to pause it so that we can comment on whatever. Yeah. And uh i raised my hand and i said back that up. I felt like i was watching this Zabruder film and we backed it up and sure enough i actually saw at the beginning of a special effects shot the starfield completely shift to another starfield within two frames so like there are actually some <laughs> grievous special effects errors in this film even though some of the effects work with the spaceships i found to be quite serviceable for 1977, even though this movie was 1980. Mm. So it was like the movie itself, I think would have been fine if it had been on TV, like Buck Rogers in the 25th century, as far as the effects work went. Mm. (laughs) The special effects for the spaceships had some decent ambitious shots in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I thought the model work, it's funny, because you came on uh, the podcast to do Outland last time, Mm. and the model work in that was also very, very good. Yeah, the details on these ships were... Very intricate. I'm not sure about the designs of the ships themselves. One design in particular. Oh, yeah? Shad's (laughs) ship. It's like they meshed together all of the genitalias (laughs) into one... Ship design because it it looked like a ball sack. Yes, with boobs. It looked like
2: flying buffalo scrotum. Yeah, what it looked like it was a flying buffalo <laughs> with scrotum nipples and and and
1: kind of these wings that kind of look like ovaries. Uh uh-huh. I, I don't know what I was looking at. Yeah,
2: yeah. there is symmetry, but it's not symmetry. It kind of looks like Admiral Akbar's ship grew ovaries and then <laughs> yeah went on a bender. Like yeah. it's kind of uh, yeah
0: hand built by James Cameron himself. Oh right, <laughs> yeah. There
1: you go. <laughs> Didn't he meet his future wife on this movie? Gail Ann Hurd, yes. Right.
2: What movie has Cameron ever done where he hasn't met his future wife <laughs> on <Well. the> production? <laughs>
1: or divorced her,
0: yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah quite. <laughs> It is peculiar. I mean, one thing to be said for it, their goal with it versus Star Wars, which was largely designed by the same person, it was largely Ralph McQuarrie. Mm. They commented that all of the ships in Star Wars looked like they came from the same factory, whereas they wanted to show lots of different alien races. So you have Nestor, which are the clone aliens who come in this big glowing thing from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like a flying saucer. Looks amazing, actually. Yeah. And then you have my favourite, which is Napoleon Solo's ship, Robert Vaughan the world-weary gunslinger, just out for one final fight because he can't show his face in any town. Mm-hmm. And he seems to be like in the E-type Jaguar of spaceships. It's really slick and very, very cool. Right, yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes a great sound. Mm-hmm. But
1: they all look very different. Yeah, they do. Were you disappointed with the, the bad guy's ship? I don't know, <laughs> it didn't seem that scary.
0: They do a flyover at the beginning, you know, how original sci-fi movie begins with spaceship flyover. And it just seems like they took the rebel blockade runner and just jammed the Star Destroyer on the back of it. It just starts off with a hammerhead and ends with a flattened sort of trapezoid shape Mm. with engines in it.
1: Yeah, it didn't have the same immensity as the Star Wars um, destroyers. But I I was more talking about the fighter ships just didn't look that menacing to me the
2: bad guy fighter ships that would deploy from the main vessel yeah
1: a bit blobby and cumbersome yeah Mm.
2: they just kind of looked like a bunch of airfix kits that were kit bashed together into a kind of shape and that's (laughs) about it
1: i mean one thing i did notice as well for the overall look of this movie it did really remind me of red dwarf Mm. and what red dwarf was probably parodying very similar (laughs) even the music was quite similar Yeah, well,
0: it's James Horner, or Jamie Horner, as they refer to him, because he was, I don't know, 22 years old, cutting his teeth in the movie making business at the Corman House. I think he'd done a couple of horror movie quickies like Humanoids of the Deep. And he was really keen to do Battle Beyond the Stars, because he was a huge fan of Jerry Goldsmith, and particularly his Star Trek motion picture score. And no surprise here, he manages to assemble not quite a symphonic orchestra, I think he had about 60 players. Right. And the blaster beam, so that every time the bad guy's ship can turn up, he can twang that blaster beam metallic sound on there. Yeah. I mean, if you compare the Klingon battle cue from the opening of Star Trek The Motion Picture with any of the battle sequences in this movie, it's pretty much that. And then you've got a fun fanfare at the beginning that um, clearly taxed the brass players on the soundtrack, because there are a hell of a load of wrong notes in this right, score. Right, right. Yes. But it's it's quite endearing.
2: <laughs> I did not look too closely at the credits list before I started watching. Like, I knew that John Boyd from the Waltons was in it, and, and John Saxon. Mm. But when I heard that music, I was like, wait a second, this is James Horner. This has got to be. I said, because this is like his practice run for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan.
0: Right
2: it
1: here. is, yeah. Very yeah. much so. Right. Yeah. yeah. Can we backtrack and, and sort of talk about the director, so Jimmy T. Murakami. Uh, he's got Japanese descent, but he is an American director. But he's he's more known for his animation
0: yes i'm not familiar with his animated work i don't know if you are well he did the when the wind blows really
1: you, you mentioned it didn't you conrad i did i didn't realize that he directed that he also did the snowman oh wow i
2: grew up watching the snowman i know that one real well based on the storybook yeah yeah really really well done animation
1: yeah uh, also one of the animators for heavy metal wow so definitely more animation so maybe didn't translate to directing live action. I'm not sure, uh, because it's a very different tone. Yeah. And
0: crucially, you have to direct real live actors, which is a whole different
1: challenge. Yes. So I guess, yeah, let's talk about the story. What
2: story? <laughs> what story? Look, I was struggling. I know it was based on Seven Samurai. Yes. And I've seen a number of adaptations of Seven Samurai. Robert Vaughn was in the most famous remake of Seven Samurai, The Magnificent Seven. Mm -hmm. and some people claim he's playing the same character he did before, and I've seen Magnificent Seven enough to know not quite. Robert Vaughn's character was playing kind of a hybrid of the Charles Bronson character from Magnificent Seven and his own character from Magnificent Mm -hmm. Seven in a way. In Magnificent Seven, his character was on his last penny. In this one, he's got all the riches in the world, and he's just bored, and everybody wants to kill him, so Mm -hmm. he goes off with Shad. What we had a problem with Melinda and I watching is that it didn't seem like there was a lot of connective tissue between what motivated Shad to find one person and then the next, and then they all kind of just come back together. It was I started to feel like the movie was written as, as a kind of, and then, and then... Oh, and then? Yeah. And so you never really know from one scene to the next why people are doing what they're doing or why the scene is ending right here and they're jumping to this next moment. Even the editing of some sequences was rather pat. You know, it was like, Mm, mm. this is a dialogue scene and we're getting through it. And I know Roger Corman is like Mr. Economy. Like, I, I get that. But some of this stuff just felt so rushed. Like, there's one shot... In the very beginning, when Shad meets the girl the, uh, in the robot satellite, whatever her name was, I can't remember. Oh, Nanelia. Nanelia, yeah. Yeah. And he's trying to convince her to come with him because he's got to go find more people. And at first she says no. And they're both standing at the door, the space door that opens up because he's about to leave. And he has this exchange with her. Mm. And I'm sitting there going, are you guys not going to break in from this master to close-ups of mm. you know, shot, reverse <laughs> shot? Because this is lasting a little long and you guys don't have the right microphone for this. And then they did cut in to shot reverse shot, but it was way too late. I'm going, okay, so they did these takes with shot reverse, but they decided to hold on this awkward, long shot for a little while. And then right after that, even though she refuses to go with him, suddenly he's on the Buffalo ball ship and he's leaving. Mm. (laughs) And she just hops in a ship behind him and goes. And she's like, hey, I'm behind you or whatever. But the way they do the dialogue, he doesn't say, "Oh, you decided to come with us," or "Oh, wow, you're here," or. Yeah. It's just he just takes it for granted that she's now with him. Now, un- unless I didn't hear the dialogue right, and you guys are looking at me going, "No." Eh.
0: No, you're absolutely right. The first thing he says is, "What you mean you've got no weapons at all?" And this is our central character, Mm Shad, who I found an insufferable prick through most of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. And particularly in that episode where he treats her like shit. I mean, he says to her, it's your life, such as it is. Mm -hmm. Rolling his eyes as he looks around the place that she calls home with her father, the only life she's ever known. I find him dismissive, arrogant, self-righteous, self-satisfied. And I think... Part of my reaction to it is because he isn't the callow farm boy youth. He also comes from, it's sort of like a religious order. They keep mm. making reference to these great teachings of theirs and that they're peace loving but they have that tinge to them that you sometimes get with these sorts of insular religious orders whereby they look upon everybody else as inferior to them because they Mm. don't get it. They're not in the in gang Mm. so damn them they're all doomed. It was the typical Star Trek Mm. perfect society it's people smiling a lot wearing beige. It's the same society that's in insurrection that when they're threatened with destruction. I'm just cheering on the bad guy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's just this smugness to him that I just want to slap throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Was that just me? <laughs> oh, no. No, I, I, no, I, I yeah. thought
2: when he showed up at the satellite, I thought he should have started, you know, holding up brochures and asking them if they'd heard about the word of, you know, whatever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he is kind of like a youth pastor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I found him very annoying. Like, as a central... Protagonist, why? Like why why are we rooting for this guy? Like, I don't want this guy to win. Like, who gives a shit about this guy? And and the way he forces himself on the as well. Like, it's almost when in movies where like they're born sexy yesterday, she's so sheltered, like she is so innocent. Like she is pretty much a child that he's he's kind of forcing himself on. And it's well, just
2: that's what's so bizarre mm. initially. When he is trying to leave the satellite because they want to keep him there to mate with the daughter and and have more children to populate the satellite and have the, the robot grandfather who's basically on life support with just a head yeah. in a life support system is like, I want to hear the pitter patter of little feet. He doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Mm. But yet, like you said, Dan, later on in the film, he's kind of being more... Creeper with her and more, you know, overt and pushy. And you're going, now, wait a second. You had the option free and clear to not worry about this fight and your doomed sort of Waco compound of friends on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You could have stayed here with this very attractive young woman and just had your hot wife and whatever for the rest of your life. With no obligations, you know, as far as they know, you disappeared into space and never came back. Mm. But you decided days later, as everything's (laughs) coming to a a horrible climax, that's when you've decided, you know what, now I'm going to take what I was offered. Yeah. And it's like... Your timing couldn't be shittier. Mm. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah.
0: And she says that she wants to go up into space with him, even though she has nothing to throw at Zador. And his reply is, you know what? I kind of want you to be there too. And I thought, you ass. Yeah. <laughs> you total asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why?
1: And he never, he never utilizes her, her expertise as a computer whiz as well. Like, she's never utilized at all. No. She's just there as the trophy girl. He literally
2: doesn't know how to fly that ship. And he's constantly arguing with the ship. Yeah, And the ship is starting to have problems toward the end. And he never asks her to help out and figure something out.
0: Yeah, He is the same to St. as well, yes. the Valkyrie, who shows up in her tiny ship. She's got this sort of Klingon warrior, to die in battle is a great thing kind of attitude to life. She's keen. She wants to be part of it. Mm. And he is so dismissive and rude and childish and awful to her. Mm. And I'm thinking, is it am I just being a social justice warrior here or is there really a common thread? Let's have a look at how he relates to all of the men that he meets. He's great to all of them. Mm. He looks up to all of them. He's bowing and scraping. He loves them all. Mm. So I'm sorry.
2: It's right there. He is from, (laughs) as you accurately pointed out, Conrad, he is from a commune of weirdos. So he's going to react this way because none of his reactions to anything in this movie have made any sense one scene to the next. Mm. The guy has no character arc, nothing. He's just young boy, as you said, number one. Like, Mm. put him in the slot. He's even got a generic... Luke Skywalker on Bespin outfit on. It's like, if you ordered Luke's outfit from the Empire Strikes Back on wish.com, that's what you would get to put him in, right? So he's got all that going on. But she, on the other hand, is playing Horst Buchholz's role from The Magnificent Seven, which is being mirrored pretty closely in the script. The only difference, of course, is now it's a female character instead of a male character. And- it's almost like the writers of this movie who were mimicking The Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven mm. didn't quite get why characters were created the way they were for that mythology. Mm-hmm. So in the case of this, Horst Buckholtz's character is the youthful, inexperienced, hot-headed guy who wants to make a name for himself as a gunfighter. Right. And so he's told, "You can't come with us, kid. We're going to the Mexican village to help these people out. We're all getting paid." You're not experienced enough. You can't come with us. And he follows them on the horse trail, Uh, you know, half a mile back, right? So they keep looking over and they're like, yeah, don't look. He's following us, but whatever. So then he gets there. And they try to convince him by the end that you have your whole life ahead of you. Don't become a gunfighter like we are. Mm. And so he has a character arc where he realizes, oh, yeah, I don't want to lead the life that these guys have led because all of them are ending up in a bad way. This is like Robert Vaughn in this movie. Mm. Mm. The problem with the Sybil Danning parallel is that they make her the one that nobody wants on the mission but for no good reason whatsoever, because they need fighters. She's from a warrior race. She's experienced in all this. And she's not a greenhorn. Like she's not somebody that you wouldn't want on your side in a fight. Yeah. And yet they're like, nah, go mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. And it's like, um, did you guys read the script for Magnificent Seven? Like, apparently you didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, what did you think about Sybil Danning's character of St. X-Men? Because at first, my initial reaction was, oh, poor girl, because she's not wearing a lot. (laughs) And she's always sitting in these really strange sort of arched back positions. I don't know. And all the costumes she's wearing, how does it even stay on her body? I'm I'm, I'm not sure. (laughs) But at the same time, it is quite sex positive. Like, she's owning it. I mean... Yeah, some of the other characters don't treat her that well. And I know that the actor, Sybil Danning, did reinvent this character of the warrior woman and being in a lot of sort of B-grade 80s movies, exploitation movies, but in an empowering way. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't sure. What did you guys think of her?
2: Nobody in this movie ever hits on her or does anything untoward aside from they just tell her they don't want her, well, Shad because he's a doofus, tells her he doesn't want her in the fight. Mm. But nobody that I can recall, like even George Pappard's character of the cowboy is more interested in this woman from the planet than he is. Mm, She just kind of moves through the scenery in these amazingly revealing clothes. Like you said, Dan, they're, you know, they defy the laws of physics and they're just these amazing ensembles. (laughs) And yet nobody really bats an eye sexually toward her. It's very weird. It's like, yeah. and, and again, I thought it was a unique play. Mm. You know, in other words, it wasn't like watching, you know, the Watchman, and you have to watch Carla Gugino get violated or attempted to get violated <laughs> by that guy on the pool table or whatever. There wasn't anything like that going on in the movie. So you just kind of yeah. look over and you go, mm. well, no wonder she became the iconic character in the promotions for this film, because mm. look at that outfit. Like, holy crap, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't think the movie has a bad attitude towards St. X Men. It's written by John Sayles, a very well respected writer, well known for taking a genre, Mm. use them to make sort of very pointed political statements almost, and satire. Right, yes. And to have and X-Men in here and to have her be portrayed so positively as far as all the other characters are concerned and to have the protagonist be a complete dick (laughs) might be deliberate.
2: Yeah, because she's the one that saves makes it possible for them to save the planet. Because she sacrifices herself. And I, audibly, not because of what she was wearing, but because she was the only character I cared about. I was like, oh. Like, I was like, oh, we got to go through the rest of this with Shad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was confused by that scene, though. So she's going towards the enemy destroyer ship, and then she screams. Yeah. Like, it it sounds like they're taking a scream from somewhere else, because it doesn't sound like her. And then she pulls up. And then another ship slams into, but what was the other ship? Whose ship was that?
2: I never did figure it out. I was very confused. And I even said the same thing, Dan, to Melinda. I said, there were two ships. She pulled up and the other ship crashed because of her cool maneuvering. Yeah. And then somehow she didn't make it anyway. I don't know if she was damaged beyond repair. I, the, the movie never makes anything clear. Uh, uh, yeah. Things just happen yeah. and you just take them at face value. Like the girl whose name I can never remember. <laughs> Nanelia. <not>, Nymanee. <laughs> Nanelia. Uh, anemone? Amenemy? She gets captured by the lizard guy and then he's going to sell her off you know, as a sex slave or whatever. And then yeah. he hears her mention the name Sador and he's like, what? Oh, forget that. I got a vendetta against that guy. Then yeah, he, poses, he poses like a vaudeville performer for the whole audience. He's like, I'm going to get Sador. And you're going, <laughs> okay, well, Shad doesn't even know what happened to Nanemini or Nenemini, and he's not looking for her. And now she's picked up another mercenary for the seven, even though she's technically one of the seven. Then he meets George Yeah. and picks him up. And then the next scene, George Papard's not following him. And you're like, where'd he go? Because I thought they docked the two ships together. But nope, not now. But he'll be back later. Yeah. It's all good. Whatever. Yeah. This whole movie is just a rattle can of plots that just they just <laughs> threw him out there and was like, "All right, let's see how it falls. We're going to read the runestones stones. <laughs> yeah. And then do it that way. Like
0: <laughs> with Cayman. What I quite liked is he was introducing his crew and he just pointed at this muscle guy in an assemblage of leather straps and tattoos and said, "This is Quipeg, my." or something. And I just thought, well, neither of those words mean anything. So I I have learned exactly nothing from that line of dialogue. (laughs) Thanks for that. And this guy
1: never shows up again. Does he throw a spear at one point in the land battle and that's it? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, You're you're right, Michael, about the episodic nature of this movie. It just seems to be a whole bunch of like short things that happen, Mm -hmm. just strung together With no connection at all. No. Uh, Like, there's no reason why any of these characters should even go and fight for Shad. Mm -hmm. But they do. And I didn't even know that he was going out to find mercenaries until he started saying, I'm looking for mercenaries. I didn't know that was what you were doing. I thought you were just trying to escape the planet and ask for help. I don't get it. It was
2: a very unclear objective once he got in that (laughs) ship. And I said to myself, you're sending him? (laughs) If the ship can fly itself, send the blind man, because at least he has experience. (laughs) Like, don't send this kid that's, you know, never even seen blue sky before. Don't send him. Oh, man. What I couldn't figure out from the bad guy's perspective right from the very beginning was if he has this stellar cannon or whatever it is that can turn a planet into a sun yeah right and effectively destroy all life on it and he threatens them with that weapon right at the beginning yes and says if you don't you know swear fealty to me mm. i've got this big weapon and you can't win yeah. so why would he try to fight them if they show any resistance Yeah. he can turn this thing into a star and you see it happen to another planet in the movie early on mm. and you go so why is he bothering to send people down and have a land battle what does he want from this beige world what is so <laughs> awesome down there that it wouldn't be more useful to him as a star
0: yeah I have no idea tactically mm. it's stupid Yeah. all he wants is another arm He could get that from any of the people that he captured. He just beams people up. They beam up that poor wedding officiator and violate her until she just wants to die. Yeah. Which I think is really dark for a children's
1: space opera. It's very dark. Yeah. I mean, this movie is tonally all over the place. Like there's really (laughs) campy most of the time and ridiculous. And then you have Gory scenes like the the scene with the sonic tank and yes. this guy's bleeding out his ears. This- blood just squirting out and and you've got the guy that dies and his face looks like it's just gone through a meat grinder. It's disgusting. And the the arm being chopped off and put on. See, that's one sequence
0: that I always do remember. There are some great sci-fi ideas in here. And the fact that John Saxon's bad guy, who I do think, I mean, John Saxon's a great actor. I mainly know him as the dad in Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. But I've always loved him in this role because he's camping it up a little bit, but not too much. He's still pretty threatening, and yeah, he just wants body parts to replace his old body parts so he can live forever, and he gets one of Nestor's arms, and because they're a clone race with a hive mind, they can control the arm remotely, and they almost managed to kill him with this yeah. one arm, and that's a, that's a great idea. I th- I thought that was fun. That stayed with me, but it does involve one
1: of their number being tortured to the point where he just dies. Yeah, he has a his. arm ripped off and he dies from extreme pain yeah yeah great (laughs) it's lovely isn't it i was confused by the potential of the nestor i mean when shad first encounters them they full-on telekinetic power him to almost shoot himself Mm. why couldn't they do that with sador without sacrificing a nestor why couldn't they just do that anyway yeah also their
2: motivation well we get bored yeah so we'll come with you because we
1: get bored yeah i feel like that's what everyone's motivation was well i wasn't doing
2: anything anyway
1: so yeah, yeah I might as well it's
2: almost like they were channeling <laughs> they knew how the audience would feel watching it it's very meta <laughs> yeah we're all bored now it's time for random trivia
0: so, Dan, what fascinating nugget of trivia did you find in a wretched hive of scum and villainy
1: today? Uh-huh. Well, uh, I did read this on IMDb, so I hope it's true. Uh, the costume department had a lot of trouble keeping Civil Danning's outfit on her, so they ended up resorting to uh, attaching it with Band-Aids. I don't know how that's the best option, <laughs> but... That's what they did, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Richard
0: Thomas talks about the fact that, you know, that outfit she has that looks like the sort of fingers covering yeah. her boobs? Her nipples would find their way out right. of those Ooh. on a regular basis. So, yeah, the costume designer or a, 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 some sort of assistant would dash on and sort of poke po- po- the, the back, back in. Back in. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> The glamour
2: of Hollywood. You've you've just related to us a literal titty twister. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's
0: wonderful. Marvelous. Uh, Another fascinating piece of trivia that I found, Gayle Ann Hurd mentions this on her commentary track. She says that uh, as well as James Cameron working on this movie, you also had amongst the Carpentry crew, Bill Paxton, who would be a punk in The Terminator and Hudson in Aliens, and Billy Hayes, who was the subject of Midnight Express, the 1978 movie about the guy who got arrested for drug trafficking and put in a Turkish prison and uh, obviously they had to have a movie about this because how unfair that a white person should face consequences for breaking another country's <laughs> yeah. laws. So, uh, yes, Billy Hayes wow. was on that movie with Bill Paxton uh, cutting up pieces of wood and building sets.
1: There you go. <laughs> well, you had to start somewhere, I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and that's our trivia. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: My favourite character, without doubt, is Gelt. Yeah, I mean, his introduction, although a little bit underwhelming in terms of the set, Mm. uh, which seems to just be one room the size of a lounge. I do like how he's presented in his first lines as well. Like he's a really interesting character to me, Mm. but yeah, with the whole episodic nature of this movie, there wasn't enough time on characters to really get to
2: know what they were like. That was the other character that I also was invested in, Mm. that one and Sybil Danning. And it's not just because Robert Vaughn is a good actor and also he was one of the few like Sybil Danning who was sort of mirroring a character from Seven Samurai slash Magnificent Seven. He had that interaction with those two children, which is very much like how Charles Bronson plays out his role in Magnificent Seven. He just had a little bit more motivation and depth to him, like Sybil Danning did. I wanted to see him live. I wanted to see Sybil Danning live. Mm. I could have cared less what happened to George Prepard I could have cared less what happened to the <laughs> Lizard Man, Shad, whatever. But those two, which were the two I really wanted to you know, put my value into, Yeah. Nope. they both got iced. Yeah. It's just like, oh.
1: It got to the point in the movie where (laughs) they were amassing all of these great fighters. And then they suddenly show up at the end in the third act. And then almost too quickly, they just get killed off one by one. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, what? Oh, he's gone. Oh, okay. Exploded.
2: And was anybody else bothered by how the villagers just didn't prepare for the battle? Yeah. Like they get the guns and then they're just literally wearing like wispy Umbro shorts and some like athletic shirts and that's it and you're going Dude, you're about to be in down and dirty, gritty combat. Are you guys telling me you don't have any heftier work clothes or anything? Yeah. (laughs) Like, you guys are just going to sit here in what? Your PJs? This is crazy. Yeah. They can cause an entire earthquake with their crystal piano. Yeah. But they can't put together uh, some solid toed shoes for the battle.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I wanted that classic montage scene where they're training all these villagers and they're, you know, shooting
2: arrows and stuff. Where where was that? It was in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is an infinitely better movie than this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of the production design? It looks pretty cheap and shoddy. I think the thing that really gets me is the controls for the ships. They look really flimsy, like the thing that Shad's supposedly controlling his booby ship with. Yeah. Looks like he could break it off if he's not too careful. I'm not convinced that this is military-grade maneuvering instrumentation.
1: Everything looks like it's made out of very thin plastic. There's no weight to any of the props or, or set design And it just looks really obvious What it's made out of As well <laughs> Inside of Gelt's ship It's just like That's just soundproofing foam Like I know that <laughs> And yeah, everything about this movie, like visually, just oh, I can see what's happening there. Like even um, like Sador's makeup—it's like I can see your makeup. I I know that's not a birthmark or a scar; that's makeup. The
2: five dudes. With the eyes just painted on their forehead and the seam lines on their supposedly alien bald heads, which is just a sock, yeah,
1: just over their <laughs> or face, or like a swimming <laughs> cap or something. Like, oh,
2: it's just—it's really obvious. And also,
1: uh, the most shocking thing about this movie is this movie came out in 1980. Mm-hmm. Why does it look like it was made in the 60s? Roger Corman,
2: right? <laughs> okay, Roger Corman is. Typically, several years behind where the standard filmmaking process is. Because, you know, when you got Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, that movie specifically in 1980, on the bleeding edge of production values of that time, mm. Roger Corman's always going to be five to seven years behind with his mm. stuff. That's why his movie in 1980 looks more like Barbarella yeah. from 1968. It does. Yeah. It, it does. does.
1: Even the uniforms, mm-hmm. just it looks like old star trek mm-hmm. <laughs> yes and not
2: even that good yeah
1: one thing i did want to mention that i thought was quite confusing was the dog fights in the final act they're they're zooming around in these ships and and lasering each other i found them really boring mm-hmm. i don't know what it was was it to do with there was no talking mm-hmm. so it would be it would be a shot of the pilot whoever it was and then Exterior shot of shooting lasers, and then another shot of the pilot, but no talking, no sense of distress, no, or like, Yes, I got him, or I'm hit, or anything, just
2: silence. And they're firing their lasers by playing their keyboards like pianos. Yeah, (laughs) I've never seen a more inefficient way to shoot (laughs) weapons on a ship. They're like, It would cut to one of the bad guys in the little fighters, and he'd go. Yeah. And it's like, what are you having to do? Control-Alt-Delete slash DIR to shoot that missile? Like, what? But there are some nice
0: touches in the effects, like, you know, when ships are sort of swallowed up by other ships, a shadow falls across them. You know, there are some nice touches. But when it comes to orchestrating an exciting climactic battle in space, it just goes to show why ILM was so good at what
2: they did. Mm, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though I do admit that the ending of the special effects part of this movie, which is them putting the uh, ship that Shad flies down on the surface because it got tractor beamed to Sador's hull, and then them escaping in an escape pod. This may be, guys, the one science fiction movie based on how the ship looks, where the villain is killed by effectively being teabagged. bagged. <laughs> And I think that deserves a mention. I think that has some merit. (laughs) Coming to you live from the Movie
0: Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards.
1: Okay, it's a Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite stellar converting parts of the film in a number of Calvin disintegrating (laughs) categories. Best quote. It's going to be a Robert Vaughn quote.
0: I know that much. Well, yeah that's what I have I have his speech which supposedly echoes a speech that he makes in Magnificent Seven but having not seen that film which I know is scandalous uh, I couldn't comment but he says "Um, I sleep with my back to the wall when I can sleep I eat serpent seven times a week there's not a major city in the galaxy where I can show my face or spend my wealth right now your offer looks very attractive to me Mm. it's not just you know a great little speech but it's just the way he delivers yeah. it he's fantastic in that yeah
2: scene. he. i mean he's he's just fantastic in the whole movie really my favorite quote from the movie it is from sybil danning talking to shad where she tells him that she's from a warrior race she exists for battle her creed is to live fast fight well and have a beautiful ending and then shad in his waco texas way is like no violent ending is beautiful and she responds you've never seen a valkyrie go down <laughs> I gotta tell you, I'm thinking about having that knitted or crocheted into some sort of framed (laughs) thing.
0: I I think a T-shirt with her in that outfit with a speech bubble saying that would sell like hotcakes. I agree. I agree. (laughs) To Redbubble we go. (laughs) Best hair or costume. I mean, it's got to be some X Men, hasn't it? Doesn't
1: she walk away with a costume award for this movie? Yeah, I mean, which which costume—the polystyrene-looking rubber fingers or the strappy one? <laughs> well, my personal favourite was was the finger one
0: that our nipples kept escaping from, apparently causing <laughs> much commotion on set because it just looks like a Janet Jackson album ah, cover come yes, to life. Yes, it does. But the other one is pretty striking as well. In good old 80s, black and red as well. Now, apparently, James Cameron's girlfriend at the time took that costume and wore it for Halloween.
2: Halloween. Oh, wow. Brave. (laughs) Yeah. Fun fact, if you are into action figures and you don't mind buying from the NECA Corporation... Um, you can actually get this action figure of her in that outfit, which was made like last year in conjunction with the Battle Beyond the Stars Steelbook Edition Blu-ray. They offered up this figure in six-inch scale and you can get it to have on your shelf. Wow. Most 80s
1: movement. Is it 80s? It's so retro. Mm. Well, well, the one
0: thing I picked out was uh, the plasma balls that uh, the Malmori are using to control their ship, which gail Heard Hurd claims was specially designed for the film and quickly became a popular gift item. You saw them in, you know, every rich kid's bedroom had a plasma ball. But um, in actual fact, Tesla invented them in 1894, and James Falk, who was a conceptual engineer, Invented the version that became the gift, the simpler version that became a gift. So those are the balls and, uh, with the lightning.
1: Well, well, it looks like sort of electricity yeah. sparks. Yeah. Very popular in the 90s as well. 80s and 90s. Every yeah. kid had one.
0: Yeah, they did. And also in every sci-fi, well, every cheap <laughs> sci-fi movie, yeah. I would say, had one of those in it.
2: Yeah. Space Mutiny has one notoriously in it. Right. Um, that all the sorceresses mm-hmm. dance around. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The most 80s moment for me in this movie has to be uh, the Confederate flag on George Pappard's ship because (laughs) it caught me totally off guard. I was surprised to see that as well. (laughs) Yeah, And, and the reason I call it an 80s moment is simply that I was born in Nashville, Tennessee in the United States, which is a southern state, and I was born in 78. So I grew up in the 80s knowing that Hollywood was fixated on if they want to depict somebody as Southern, Mm. they utilize the Confederate flag, whether it was on Smokey and the Bandit's car, Mm -hmm. on the Dukes of Hazzard car, on Cowboy's spaceship in Battle Beyond the Stars. That was Hollywood's idea of a symbol for Mm. Southern dude. And so when I saw that, I was immediately transported back to a time in the early 1980s as a child where you kind of saw that flag everywhere in pop culture referring to Southern people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Favorite scene. My favorite scene from this movie is easily the scene where Sador doesn't realize that they can control that arm and they try to kill him with the arm. Mm. That part was the strongest bit of business <laughs> that I think yeah. was in the film, really. And I know that's not a lot, but it's it's at least an interesting concept. Mm it seems a, a little more Star Trekky than anything else that they infused into this film because everything else was just kind of a rip-off. Uh, that was something I was like, okay, yeah, mm, telekinesis mm. and trying to trick the guy who needs the limb into getting killed by his new limb. All right. Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I'd have to agree. I think that if there's anything in the movie that I found memorable as a kid, then that was it. Mm, Definitely. Yeah. Most
1: cliche moment. So many cliches in this movie <laughs> <laughs> well it's oh. tricky isn't it because
0: it's just a rip i know the, the movie.
1: entire movie is a
0: cliche. <laughs> <laughs> i mean if i had to pick out one that pricked up my ears that i haven't mentioned before on this podcast i don't think it's where the bad guy shouts fire at will <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> you always have to fire at will at some point during a sci-fi movie. And I particularly like the ones where they make a bit of a a jokey reference to it. So there is a Star Trek movie from the next generation where the next cut is to Will Riker, which is quite funny. And I believe in Pirates of the Caribbean, there is a moment where you cut to Orlando
2: Bloom's character when somebody Uh, says fire at Will, Uh so
0: That's always a bit funny. Ho, ho. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> the self-destruct countdown to destroy the big bad is a pretty big cliche. Yeah, but how insufferable was it? Though? <laughs> well, Cause
0: yeah, because it had the added <laughs> twist that the computer was suffering from some sort of senility, Hal uh, style. So, yeah, she couldn't actually count down. And yet, J- John Boy is not particularly worried about this. He's taking his good time getting out of that ship, even though she could decide that it's zero at yeah. any point. Yeah, literally.
1: uh well the cliche i would pick out would be that the bad guys always have to be just severely deformed or scarred like Mm. all the all of the henchmen they will look like burn victims or or something i don't know what's going on (laughs) i don't know they're all
0: mutants aren't they i think yeah yeah best special Special effect.
1: effect i actually do like
0: some of the motion control model work i think the bit that I most liked was the slow flyover of Doctor Hephaestus's station ah, when yes, they yes. don't know whether there's anybody there or not, and that's that's another scene where they almost create tension and mystery and a sense of wonder. Almost. almost, yeah. But the model's nice and detailed, and it's well lit, and the camera passes are good. I and the score's nice, yeah. So I I think some of the motion control model work, but I'm kind of nostalgic for that motion control model work anyway. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. How about you, Michael?
2: I'd go so far as to say one of the best special effects in the film is Sybil Danning. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean that in a misogynistic <laughs> way. I mean that in the way that she was able to keep herself in those costumes <laughs> is a magic trick. Wow. That is that is a practical special effect that was pulled off with Ooh. great aplomb. Or, ke- or kept on with great aplomb, I should say. You barely, barely. Barely. Favorite sound effect.
1: I'd like to point out one sound that I hear everywhere, especially in anything pre-90s. I don't know what it is, but it, it's like a sound that they use on ships all the time. I'm going to try and play it. Yes. That sound. So many Saturday morning cartoons. What is it and why is it everywhere? It's, it's, <laughs> I remember it from Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin, that we've covered. Yes. It's in like a lot of animated TV
2: shows. What is that sound? I've no idea. Mm-hmm. It's like the classic grenade sound yeah. that was in movies going all the way back to the 40s. Yeah. And you're like, that, that... <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That one, it's like, what was the first movie that was in? And you go, there's no telling. There's yeah. no yeah. way to know. Yeah. How about you, Michael? I think that my favorite sound effect is probably going to be that crystalline structure that yes. they use yes. uh, on the planet, Uh the Waco planet, whatever it's called. The reason that I liked it was it kind of reminded me in some ways of like, it was almost like a harbinger for synthwave. I was like, oh, we really are getting (laughs) into the 80s soon. You know, this is kind of like the precursor (laughs) to synthwave. And I also liked the way it looked aesthetically, although I know we're talking about sound effects. But when that thing popped up and and then they started playing the, the notes from it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I haven't seen that in a sci-fi film before. That's yeah. Cool. yeah. Most, Most funniest, funniest moment. moment. Oh, well, my funniest scene is when the lizard man randomly decides not to sell the girl into <laughs> sex slavery because he then turns to those two thermal guys who like fight with their thermal energy. They're like the two little bald guys that mm. are like symbiotic and they fight with heat or whatever. He turns to them, it cuts to a wide shot and he's like, Something that like, I'm going to destroy Sador. And then he does this like wrestling pose where yeah. he's kind of like one, two points. He almost looks like Buddy Christ from Dogma. He's like, yeah. I'm going to yeah. stop Sador. And you're like, why? Why are you striking this posture? Like, what
1: are you doing? Funnily enough, my favorite funny moment in this movie was also came in, Um, And it's his last scene mm-hmm. where he, he makes his final attack. And he, he has this <laughs> this wailing war cry that seems to sound like, lazily, and it just goes on <laughs> forever as well. I what? <laughs> Who okayed this?
2: I I think Dan, that should be your text message <laughs> notification sound on your phone. <laughs>
0: okay, and that's how Mubali's yes.
1: Hi, this is Manuente Reme, Teireme, from Star Trek Voyager, and Billy from One Tree Hill, and you're listening to Movie
2: Oubliette.
1: Okay, it's final verdict time. Should battle beyond the stars, throw off its tyrannical oppressors, and be liberated from its prison to be loved by all, or should it be blown up by a nuclear missile and discreetly swept back into the Oubliette, lost forever? <laughs> Michael, Battle Beyond the Stars. Is this the non-Star Wars movie you've always wanted that definitely isn't Star
2: Wars? (sighs) Well, I don't want to be too poetic about it. I'm just going to say that I want to kick these horse-nutted spaceships right back (laughs) into the oubliette. I do not see any reason to continue to remember this film beyond there were a lot of Star Wars competitors back in the day who tried to Mm. jump on the fad. This is not one. I think Battlestar Galactica, the original classic, Mm -hmm. has some merit to it still. I even think the first season of Buck Rogers in the 25th century is a kitschy bit of time capsule. This, on the other hand, it does not have the agency of Star Crash. And that movie, (laughs) while bizarre and kitschy, at least it makes a mark. Yeah. This film, on the other hand, woof, just, I don't want to say it's a cynical cash grab because I think Roger Corman, like we've said, is not a cynical guy. But this movie just fails mm. on so many levels to create tension, to create agency, to create suspense, to world build. Yeah. It has none of that. None of that. There's no character building no, aside from Robert Vaughn and Sybil Danning. There's no character yeah. building in any of this. So everybody's just props in a cardboard world. And I say, <laughs> recycle it.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I would have to agree. I, I just felt like from scene to scene, I just thought, why are they doing this? Why is this character agreeing to this? What, what's happening now? OK, what, what's this? And then the final big battle scene it was really dull. I, I don't know how they made, made it mm-hmm. so dull that I didn't care when when characters were killed off apart from yes a, a couple it just seemed to unfold with no sense of goal and i don't know it, it's it's it could have been really funny if they'd that they, they'd really hammed it up with the campiness and the in the comedy it could have been a really funny movie that didn't take itself seriously and was just a blatant ripoff of another movie but it, it was so serious. It played itself so straight that it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Conrad. Well, I, I, on
0: the other hand, fondly remember this from my childhood when it was a, a regular rental from my local video wow. store where for a, a kid raised on Star Wars, anything that was a space opera that looked in any way, shape or form like Star Wars... Uh, was just catnip and I lapped it up. No, I'm I'm talking complete <laughs> bullshit. I thought I thought this was cheap, shoddy knockoff rubbish then. <laughs> I think it's cheap shoddy knockoff rubbish now. And crucially as an adult watching it, I think the central character is an arse. Oh yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I really wish he would get yeah. killed. And uh-huh. so um uh, there's some nice production in here surprisingly for a corman film in fact the model work is so nice he then used it in in eight subsequent <laughs> like straight to video right. movies even in the 90s wow. shame on him mm-hmm. it's there's some nice elements and it gave birth to a lot of great careers and tries to be fun, but yeah, it's it's just not good movie making, mm. and it's not entertaining now. And it wasn't to me then as a kid, despite a few little bits that I remembered, like the psychic arm assassination. Yeah. So, but ultimately, I think it just gets thrown back yeah. in there, shouldn't it? Really, really should. Yeah.
2: To, to paraphrase Harrison Ford on the set of Raiders of the Lost Ark, "Battle beyond the stars, battle beyond the stars." Nope, it's just another. Useless experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Okay. Come here, you. Uh. Back you go. Wow. Well, Michael, it's been amazing having the experience of live recording your reaction to battle beyond the stars. Uh, What wonderful pieces of pop culture can uh, your audience look forward to seeing next? And where can everyone follow you? Mm.
2: They can follow me on my main platform, which is YouTube. So youtube.com backslash retroblasting. We're also under Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all under the same name, retroblasting, I-N-G, all one word and upcoming is bionic six part two and then after that there's going to be a little piece about a subversive lego set that i've discovered Ooh. and then after that the sky's the limit i'm working on a thundercats uh, retrospective with uh, another youtube channel i'm working on an update to the big custom bespin freeze chamber play set that i've been uh, putting together and uh yeah, just a, a lot of new things in the hopper that are hopefully all better than Battle Beyond the Stars and Bionic 6. Because, wow. Uh, I'm going to start avoiding sci-fi that starts with the letter B. I'll, I'll put it that way. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, nobody should avoid your channel because it's always entertaining, even if the material that you're examining oh, is not. Yes, it is. Which is great. <laughs> <laughs> And if everybody would like to follow us, uh, we are on all social channels as Movie Oubliette. And you can email us
1: at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yes, and you can also find us uh, on YouTube, uh, Movie Oubliette. We've got an upcoming video essay coming up for a very celebrated day uh, of the year for many moviegoers. Uh, so watch out for that. And uh, we also have merchandise on Rebubble, uh, anything you could ever want to decorate your house.
0: (laughs) And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can vote on films for us to cover in future episodes and gain access to extended parts of the show. And for $5, you get access to exclusive interviews with our guests and our Minisodes, which are now Vidisodes.
1: Yes. yes. And the last one we did uh, was on the animated movie, Lord of the Rings.
0: Yes, interesting comparison with the new Amazon series which isn't actually all that bad.
1: Yeah, and, and Michael, you do have you also had a um a video on Lord of the Rings a, a while back.
2: Yes, we did do a video about Lord of the Rings a while back. We had a presentation at Dragon Con about the animated Lord of the Rings and uh the Ralph Bakshi film from the either late 70s or very early 80s. And uh, we've also done a live stream about the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Tol- the books of Tolkien. Um, and I plan on doing another Lord of the Rings retrospective in the future about the toy biz movie tied in merchandise. Wow. So, yeah, that's going to be a little while ahead of, uh, ahead of th- where we are right now. Yeah, that yeah, might be yeah. 2025, but we're working <laughs> on it. So. Nice. No, looking forward to that.
1: So, Conrad, what are we
0: looking forward to next episode? Well, next episode, we will be celebrating Halloween. Can you believe it's spooky Mm -hmm. season already? And we will have a very special guest with us who has chosen for us to talk about the 1998 American fantasy romantic drama film... Practical magic.
2: Ah, yes. Yeah, co-starring Nicole Kidman, who shares my skin complexion.
0: That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Sandra Bullock and Diane Wiest and Stockard Channing and Aidan Quinn. It's quite the cast. Directed by Griffin Dunn, who I always remember for being uh, the main character's best friend, who was slowly rotting away in American Werewolf in London. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Later had a career as a director. And, uh, yeah, I have never seen it, so I am very much looking forward to discussing it, especially with our special guest. Yeah. But uh, thank you for our special guest today, Michael. It's been wonderful. Thank you for joining us again.
2: Thank you for having me. I always love being on your show. You have the best movie review podcast ever. And I I find it a privilege to just be asked. So thanks (laughs) for having me back. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Bye for now, everyone.
1: Goodbye. Bye. We review
0: the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't come up the movie, you be I could do wonders for that boy. I could recharge his capacitors, stimulate his solenoid, tingle, dingle,
2: dangle, prangle his resistors. You know, sex.